Most of you probably know this story um, in the discourses or in the Pali Canon about the Buddha after his awakening under the Bodhi tree. And he hung out in that area evidently for seven weeks or so, taking in, maybe integrating the insight that he had, the profound insight he had about the nature of the mind. And uh, it's said that uh, he wasn't inclined to teach or to tell anybody about what he had come to understand because he thought it was too subtle or nobody would get it. And evidently, one of the Brahma gods, the very refined beings, intuited or psychically understood what the Buddha was thinking and came down and encouraged him to teach, saying something like, there are beings with little dust in their, in their eyes. And it always seemed a little, I don't know, disconcerting <laughs> that the Buddha hesitated teaching. And, uh, but sometimes we get a sense of why that might be. You know, I, I don't know if that's really the true truth or just a teaching story. I mean, we can't really tell about these legends in the Buddhist tradition. But it's just an interesting thing to reflect on. And in some of our small group discussions today, and I'm sure it's come up for all of us at other times as well, it's, it can strike us as remarkable, remarkably simple, like not clinging, or not being attached to desires, letting go of attachment. It's so remarkably simple to, for the heart, to invite the heart to let go of its grip on whatever is being known or whatever is happening. And uh, it's amazing, you know, what our mind, I think, what our conditioned mind usually does is, in a very loud, arrogantly confident voice, says, no, it can't be that simple. <laughs> this, you know, it just it can't be just about letting go of attachment. I mean, is it really that simple? So, as you know the story, the Buddha then decided he would teach, and he thought about who to teach, and eventually settled on tracking down five former companions of his, people he had been practicing with, and thought they would be receptive to what he had come to understand. And sure enough, he gave this talk that's often entitled Setting the Wheel of Dhamma in Motion or Setting the Wheel of Truth in Motion, sharing what he had come to understand and seeing that other people can also understand it. And, you know, as the story goes, one of the five understood what the Buddha was talking about right then and there, not intellectually, but directly in his own experience as he was listening to the Buddha talk and uh, had an awakening, a deep insight, setting him on the path toward full awakening. And uh, 
This talk was the talk on the Four Noble Truths, which I brief, briefly mentioned last night, setting the wheel of Dhamma and motion. And when uh, monks and nuns want to delight the devas, the celestial beings, they chant this discourse, you know, late at night. And uh, evidently, the celestial beings love it. And uh, it's a more systematic, sophisticated version of uh, freedom arises from non-attachment. And you might even pick up a whiff of that same delight that we're told that celestial beings have when they hear the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, that it's really that simple. Once we have some intuition about this path of non-grasping or non-clinging, how simple it is, then uh, it's delightful to be reminded. Many people, many, many times in this retreat and other retreats, and also my own experience, how many times have we had that experience where our mind or heart has been gummed up or tight, resistant, caught up in one way or another, and then in the moment of recognizing that the mind or heart is resistant or caught up, it just stops, it, it ceases. The heart lets go of what was extra, that resistance, that complication, that not wanting things to be the way that they are. So we all know this experience probably countless times we've seen the mind go from being tight and complicated to a sense of release, the release of what was tight and complicated. So in that talk, now I'll give the more systematic, sophisticated version of don't cling. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein, you know, uh, liked to sort of simplify things like that, you know, and he would I forget exactly how he phrased it, but in his talks would say things like uh, not clinging. And then later he realized he had to add right now. <laughs> no, it's all about not clinging to anything. And then, yeah, and right now, not clinging to anything right now. Including the doubt that arises, well, this it can't be that simple, right? Not clinging to that thought either, not taking a hold of it, not taking the bait. Just let that doubt or that resistance to it being so simple, you can just let that also arise and cease. We don't have to, like, uh, enforce the truth on the body and mind. No, really, it's that simple. <laughs> no, it's not. It can't be that simple. Then, then we have a war. I mean, freedom means not having to convince anybody, including ourselves. You know, because if we had to convince ourselves. That doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like a lot of work. 
convince ourselves it's simple. So the first thing he said in the talk was that this freedom, this ease, this release that he realized arose not from indulging in anything, but also not from rejecting anything or being afraid of anything. And in particular, you know, the world. It's not about seeking the release in the world of experience, nor is it about removing yourself from the world of experience in order to have release. So this is what he means by the middle way. And it's a, it's a very profound teaching. It's not, you know, and you've heard me say this and maybe other people too, the middle way isn't halfway between this way and that way. It's an altogether different approach. So by saying it's not about seeking our happiness in sense experience, nor is it about seeking happiness by rejecting sense experience, he basically is saying it has nothing to do with the world. Or in many, many other talks, he phrased it in terms of it's not about the five aggregates. It's not about mind and body, this happiness, this peace. And then he sets up the framework around the Four Noble Truths. And each, in each of these four, practices or um, places to awaken, there were three insights that arise. So there are 12 insights he's inviting us to open to in this talk. And uh, Kandanya, the, one of the five friends of his, had these 12 insights as he was giving the talk, to some degree at least. So the first three insights have to do with the first noble truth. There is dukkha, right? This is common sense. In life, in this reality, in this conventional reality that we live with, we experience stress. And this should be understood, not denied, not investing in distraction, but actually we should make a point of understanding stress, the experience of stress when it arises for us. And even if we think it hasn't, isn't arising for us right now, we should just check. If there's any stress, any sense of it being burdened or heavy in life. And then the third insight is dukkha has been understood. And one way to think about this, um, you know, part of that first that noble truth of suffering is that it's happening right here. The location of the suffering is here. In another place, in uh, Ajahn Sumedho, in one of his books, um, The Sound of Silence, he, he talks about consciousness and, you know, this is sort of a controversial place in the Buddhist teachings of how to understand consciousness or awareness. But he talks about consciousness, as the Buddha did a few times in the discourses, as being 
unre- uh, sort of um, manifesting as unrestricted, unbounded awareness. If you've been coming to the Sunday and Wednesday night talks recently, I've been talking about compassion and love as unbounded, unlimited, immeasurable. It's the way it's talked about. And that's also true with, it's also a characteristic of awareness or consciousness. Now, we normally experience consciousness bound up with the particular object we're knowing in the moment. I see somebody, and consciousness is can't be distinguished from what's being seen, or what's being thought, or what's being heard. But we can intuitively understand right now that ultimately, consciousness, as we actually experience it, not just theoretically, consciousness is unbounded. Like, just experiment, like, what can't your consciousness, your awareness, know? Where, where are its limits? Where, what are the actual limits you see right now with your consciousness or your awareness? So, the way Ajahn Sumedho talks about it is, given, you know, the force of ignorance, I guess we'd say, consciousness is contained or somehow ends up expressing itself through this limit, through the limitations of this mind-body form. So what is ultimately, essentially boundless, limitless, unrestricted, not established anywhere, this awareness, not personal at all. Like, is my awareness different than anybody else's awareness? Now, what I'm knowing right now may be very different than what you're knowing. What my awareness is knowing or what my consciousness is illuminating, the objects may be very different amongst us, but is the actual expression or actual nature of consciousness, in my mind, different from anybody else's? So there, you can, you know, one way to just hold this is this, this what is, which is unbounded, unrestricted, not established anywhere, ends up being bound to this particular form, body-mind form, and the limitations. The limitations meaning just maybe the sort of biological, what we might call biological limitations of this form, but also the particular uh, mental formations, the sankharas, the tendencies of this mind-body form. And so consciousness, and I think you could probably say love too, ends up being expressed. And so our consciousness gets confused by the limitations of the form it's relating to, or relating through, I should say. Let me just read a little bit of what Ajahn Sumedho says here. Again, this is in his book, The Sound of Silence. Consciousness embraces the whole of this body. And if we recognize that, then we begin to notice the different physical conditions, feelings. So this consciousness, it's uh, vinyaya. When we are born, we are conscious through a form. At the birth of a baby, it is separate 
The umbilical cord is cut. It is a separate form that is conscious. We don't create consciousness. It is not an artificial experience. It is natural. Consciousness isn't self. We might want to say my consciousness, but that is memory again. Right? We recognize this ability to be aware, to know things, and it seems really familiar. Like, seems like I was aware like this yesterday and the day before and when I was in my 20s. So if we impute, we project onto it that it must be my consciousness because of that continuity. Paul? What do, you, what do you mean by mind? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, are you talking about the biological, the brain? Um, I mean, it just sounds like he's, he's uh, assuming that we're implying that consciousness comes from the universe or into the human being. Um, or what is unlimited and boundless ends up, for maybe reasons we can't explain, ends up being connected with or limited by this form, this the kind of momentum of this mind-body form. And that's why we need wisdom. And he'll go on to talk about this. If we weren't, if there wasn't, um, if consciousness hadn't gotten, you know, awareness or the nature of the mind, the empty, uh, radiant nature of the mind, if it hadn't gotten limited, constrained by this form, you wouldn't need wisdom. So wisdom isn't an ultimate thing. It's a relative thing to remind the mind, the mind and the sort of the awareness, to recognize how it is. Because the limitation that we experience as a human being arises, it's not essential to the, to the dynamic, to our existence. It arises because the mind uh, takes on the limitations of this form. It gets identified with the limitations of this form. For example, one of the consequences of this form is that we're always sensitive and vulnerable to sense impingements all the time, to being cold, to being warm, to being humiliated, to being feeling proud. All of these different experiences we're vulnerable to can't actually be avoided completely, right? And it's really easy to be, for our mind, to be confused by this constant bombardment of sense experiences, pleasant and unpleasant, neutral sense experiences. And because of the particular shape of our conditioning, <clears throat> we have this inclination, this strong inclination, to take it personally and to grasp it, you know, by taking it personally, and then to react based on that perception that it's personal, that the sense experience is personal, and the desire that arises around sense experience is personal, and my action to get what I want or get rid of what I don't want is personal. So I don't think 
Ajahn Tomato, I certainly wouldn't, and I don't think Ajahn Tomato would even want to say this is how it is. But I think presenting models like this is just helping us to open our mind to this strange dynamic we begin to wake up to, which is we do intuit. I mean, it doesn't take much practice before we begin to intuit something boundless. But yet, so much of our ordinary experience is just the opposite. We feel bound. We feel trapped by life and by experience, caught by things. We don't feel free, right? Yet, why would so many of us practice a path of freedom if so much of our day-to-day experience was, I don't feel free? Where does that confidence come from? So we have some intuition that there is this confusion and we can, the mind, this mind-body process can wake up from that confusion, can distinguish what's unbounded from the limitations of the body. Let me just read a little bit more of what he has to say here. And then I'll read a few, I think, very powerful um, discourses from the Buddha or sections of some of the talks from the Buddha. Consciousness is like this. Then intuitive awareness puts us in the position of recognizing that consciousness is knowing. It has this measureless, immeasurable sense. It has no boundary. In this moment, if you are just aware, then consciousness is operating. You're not binding the experience to a particular form. Now skipping down a bit. This retreat is about breaking out of that illusion. It is like informing consciousness with wisdom. And he mentions Ajahn Chah talking about um, uh, that we uh, do not operate from a conditioned thinking and perception we have acquired through ignorance, but instead we operate through wisdom, that we're actually cultivating wisdom in order to counter the limitations, the force of conditioning. So wisdom is a relative thing necessary because of the force of habit. If there were no force of habit, there would be no need for wisdom. And again, this is important because we think of wisdom as being some ultimate truth. But wisdom is relevant for ignorant human beings, human beings under the force of conditioning, under the force of habit. Then we need to construct something opposite of that force of habit, which we call wisdom, to sort of restore a balance. So he goes on, he says, if we do not understand things as they are, if we are not awake, we create illusions and then believe in them. And this means there's always something missing, something wrong, something lacking, something amiss. And we take that personally. We can see how there is something wrong with ourselves or wrong with the world. Why can't we live in harmony and do away with war? We have these ideals. Wouldn't it be nice if? Wouldn't it be nice if everyone were nice? But on the conditioned level, how can you demand everything be nice? Because niceness is dependent on conditions. To feel nice, you have to have certain conditions for that feeling. The conditioned realm is like this. It is basically an irritation, having a body. 
We are born into a form that is going to be irritated until it dies. I hope this doesn't depress you. How long can you sit in comfort without feeling hungry or thirsty? Or how much of our life is spent trying to reduce irritation? This arises from being limited to having this physical body. How can you control life so that only nice things impinge on it? Because inevitably we have to deal with not nice things too. Conditions are what they are, but they have the range of pleasant to pain, that whole range from the best to the worst in terms of the quality that we experience in the present. So when you reflect in this way, it is not worth trying to make everything nice all the time, because inevitably you will fail. It is like trying to do something totally impossible, so why do it? Awakening and reflecting in the way of liberation, seeing things as they are, informing consciousness through wisdom rather than merely being a helpless victim of our conditioning. There's a particularly powerful discourse, a couple of discourses, but I'll, I'll just read maybe one, or one for sure, but maybe a couple. So the Buddha is now talking about this same process about how consciousness gets limited. And uh, here's what he says. There are these four nutriments for the establishing of beings or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. What for? Right? So four nutriments. Food, physical food, gross or refined. And maybe, maybe by this he means more than physical food, but just uh, uh, sense experience related to survival. Contact, right, sense contact, consciousness, and intellectual intention is the fourth, right? So consciousness that's under the influence of samsara, of conditioning, right? It needs food, and the food, or nutriment, and the food is like attraction to food, the, the desire, identification with the desire for food, sense experience or contact, consciousness, just to be awake, just to know, the attachment to knowing, and the attachment to having intention, it's sort of volition, a sense of force, like I can make things happen, I can intend, I can want. These are the four nutriments for the establishing of beings or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. Where there is passion, delight, and craving for the nutriment of food, consciousness lands there and grows. So not just food, but he repeats it for the four. So where there is passion, delight, and craving for the nutriment of physical food, for um, contact, for consciousness and intention, Consciousness lands there and grows, right? It proliferates. Where consciousness lands and grows, name and form alight. That's the diversification. We start turning the world into this and that. Where name and form alight, there is the growth of fabrication, mental activity. Where there is the growth of fabrication, there is the production of renewed becoming in the future. Where there is the production of renewed becoming in the future, 
There is future birth, aging, and death. Together, I tell you, with sorrow, affliction, and despair. So this, the limitations of this life get reestablished, renewed over and over again. And whether you want to think about this as moment to moment, this is happening, or morning after morning, you know, we die, we go to sleep at night, and the day ends, and then we take rebirth in the morning, again, the same process repeating itself, or lifetime to lifetime. But the Buddha is saying that it has this particular dynamic. Yeah, Kissy. Well, the Buddha was really clear, and I bet you remember, but let's just reflect on that question. What is it about consciousness? Is it, what's the beginning of the whole chain? It's ignorance, right? So, it's this, where there is passion, delight, and craving, right? So it isn't actually the fact that food exists or contact exists as a possibility, or intention or consciousness exists as a possibility. It isn't that this limited form, you know, mind-body form, is available that causes it to happen. It's the desiring, the attachment, the clinging itself. Right? So there's something that gets set in motion. And he describes it here as passion, delight, and craving. So that's the force for the renewal of existence. Without passion, delight, and craving, this existence, this is the teachings of the Buddha, you don't have to believe this, but it's just nice to open our minds to it. This existence we have would not arise without that passion, delight, and craving for these four nutriments. So there's a force in the universe you know, in the mind-body, there is a, an alive force that is desiring, craving sense experience in terms of food, in terms of just sense contacts, whatever, you know, we're particularly conditioned to want. And there's a craving for consciousness, just the capacity to know and to intend. And you know, if you watch your mind, like on retreat, you'll notice how much our mind wants to intend things. Okay, I'm going to intend to sit still on this sit, you know. We have all kinds of intentions. These are little births, you know. I'm Because we intend in order to make something happen that isn't the way we want it to be. Or even if we really like the way it is, we intend for it to stay the same. So it's each of these desiring, these cravings, is a birth. It's setting in motion a birth, you know, a continuation of the mind-body process. Now, the good part's still yet to come. So again, um, just to repeat that last paragraph or to revisit it. So where there's passion, delight, and craving for the nutriment of food, of um, contact, of consciousness and intention, then consciousness gets established there. It grows. And where consciousness gets established, then name and form arises. 
Because consciousness, when it's under the influence of, of samsara, of sankara, these conditions, it starts to divide things up because it's got an agenda. You know, it's got these four agendas. So it starts to discriminate, like uh, that funny way that Ajahn Armo talks about it. Can I eat it? Will it eat me? Can I mate with it? I mean, this is what our consciousness is doing. It's turning things into name and form. 99% of the stuff doesn't matter because it's not going to eat me and I can't eat it and I can't mate with it. So we name it as, don't worry about it. <laughs> and then we name the other stuff and we really pay attention to the other stuff. And then out of that comes the whole world of complications and all the weight of those complications. And then a little later in this talk the Buddha gave, <clears throat> he goes to the other end, right? Where there is no passion for physical nutriment, where there is no delight and no craving for any of these four things, food, contact, intention or consciousness, then consciousness does not get established there, doesn't land and grow. Name and form won't come to be. The growth of fabrications won't come to be. There will be no production of renewed becoming in the future. Where there is no production of renewed becoming in the future, there is no future birth, aging, and death. That, I tell you, has no sorrow, affliction, or despair. Now that... That itself is pretty provocative, but he goes on to give a very, I think, a very powerful simile. And this isn't, you don't hear this as often. I know I've used it a couple times, but not very often. Just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south, or east. When the sun rises and a ray has entered by way of the window, where does it land? Right? And his students answer, on the western wall, sir. And if there's no western wall, the Buddha says, on the ground, sir. And if there's no ground, on the water, sir. And if there's no water, it does not land, sir. In the same way, the Buddha says, where there is no passion for physical nutriment, and on from there, you know. Um, consciousness does not land or grow. That, I tell you, has no sorrow, affliction, or despair. So this is a better answer to your question. I forget if it was Casey or um, Paul that asked the question about where does, why does consciousness land or why does it get limited? How does it get limited? And consciousness, I think I, I forget if it was here or at my uh, Wednesday night talk, but Guy Armstrong has this image of consciousness, I think it was Wednesday, so last Wednesday, or Sunday rather. Um, Guy Armstrong, one of the teachers at, at Spirit Rock, and he also teaches at IMS, has this really nice image of starlight moving through deep space. And so you're looking out into deep space so deep that there's no stars that you can see. But there's a big star behind you, not too far away shining light out toward deep space. Would you know that there's a star behind you? No, because there's nothing to reflect back the starlight. So this is one way to think about consciousness. 
when it's unestablished, it's not nothing, right? There, there is this, whatever you want to call it, you, know, you can call it light, but it's just not manifesting as anything. And if we threw a boomerang out and it went out in front of us, it would reflect the starlight. And if we were wise, if we were ignorant, we'd say, well, that's a boomerang. And if we were wise, wise we'd say uh, that there's a boomerang. And that the boomerang, uh, the boomerang is sort of uh, a means to awaken to something that I wasn't noticing before, which we could call starlight, or the essential nature of the mind, or whatever you want to call it. So uh, that that sort of nature of mind, or nature of consciousness, or unrestricted consciousness, it only manifests when there's ignorance. It only sort of gets established and has an existence when there's ignorance. When there's no ignorance, it doesn't land anywhere. This, so there's so many discussions about like what happens to an enlightened being or an awakened being at death. So the, the karma of that body and mind ends. And because, by definition, an awakened person isn't producing isn't caught by karma so the restricted the established nature of that consciousness it's not going to hit a wall anymore there's nothing for that to hit so it doesn't make sense to ask what happens to an arhat after death because it doesn't exist in the way that we think of things existing it's unmanifested but we don't know what that means. We only know what manifested means or expressed means. We know what it feels like to be established in an experience, in a mind-body experience. But we don't know what it is to be unestablished. But we can now, because we're practicing and we're hearing these teachings, we can experiment. We can begin to orient the mind toward this intuitive experience of consciousness, awareness not uh, restricted by the particular objects. We can intuit that freedom, that unbounded, immeasurable nature of awareness as a way of awakening to a different refuge. Now, right now, our only refuge is ignorance. What I like, what I don't like, what I'm afraid of, what I want. This is what we take refuge in all the time. Whether it's in a really gross way, like I want nuclear weapons and and uh, you know people who are like me, and that's where I feel safe. Or you could take refuge in concepts in a very refined way, like loving everybody. And a world where everybody treats each other with respect and shares what they have. But as long as the mind consciousness is dependent on anything, then that exists, there is an existence, and by definition, it's limited. At least that's how I understand the teachings here. Here's another related quote. 
Consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around. Here, water, fire, water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. Here, long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form, without remnant, are brought to an end. With the cessation of the activity of consciousness, each is here brought to an end. just Mahayana, it's just Mahayana made a really big deal out of it. They really emphasized it. But of course, that's exactly what happened to the Buddha, right? The Buddha uh, spent, you know, according to the legend, incalculable lifetimes cultivating beautiful qualities and manifesting them in really productive, beautiful ways. And as is probably true with most of what in the Theravada tradition are called arahats. So, uh, so I think the, you know it's a, it's an endless debate, but uh, I think uh, and even still today in the Theravada tradition, you know there are still people who make that resolve to be a Buddha and to cultivate not to cult, not not to practice for awakening full awakening and the cessation of the mind-body process, but to practice in order to develop the beautiful qualities, the paramis, and to be able to express them in really productive, powerful ways. Yeah, and to be a Buddha. But, you know, the, the, the ideal definitely got developed and emphasized in the later Buddhist tradition. So it, I, I'm not a student of those traditions, so I can't say too much about it. But yeah. Uh, Janet, do you have a thought? I'm just still trying to understand the talk. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Steve Armstrong telling a story about practicing in Burma and having these experiences where he, he felt like he was naked. And, and it was like his... He, he was um, like the experience of having the body was less and less tangible in some way, and and that kind of makes sense to me. That and that's the closest I can get to understanding what you're talking about. That that like uh, yeah, it's like the 
the body has less and less weight to it or something. Is that what my question? Is that is that kind of what the Buddha is talking about? Or is that just some other thing? Well as a you know, as an ordinary human being, when we experience freedom or some kind of release, it's either because the conditions in the moment are really nice and so and the limitations of our imagination. We can't imagine anything we want right now because I like the conditions as they are. There's a form of release there. You know, we've all experienced that where the conditions are pretty nice and our imagination is pretty quiet. And so there's a real sense of peace and release and happiness there. But <clears throat> that that kind of happiness is limited. It's uh, and it's vulnerable to the mind recognizing that however nice it is now, it won't always be this way. And so even before it changes, just knowing that makes that pleasant experience not satisfying. And the mind wants real happiness, a happiness that it doesn't, uh, that isn't vulnerable to anything. So that's just part of our makeup. We want real happiness, unshakable happiness, an unshakable release, right? Anybody not want that? We all want that. So we look for it. And, you know, we look for it in all kinds of ways. Like, think about how many times we've adjusted our body to get it. And how many times we've adjusted our friends and partners, some of us, to get it. And, you know, different fads we went on and different diets we went on and different religious traditions we've studied to get that. And what, as I understand the teachings of the Buddha, what he's saying is that at some point when we bump up against these teachings, the Dhamma, which is to pay attention to the way it is, we see dukkha, we really understand dukkha, that this whole mind-body realm is fundamentally limited. So if I try to establish, if I try to derive happiness from anything I can conceive of, see or touch, I, it's not going to work. So that puts us up against the wall, a kind of a spiritual uh, problem, which is really good. It's important because the mind won't open to the unknown until it's convinced that the known isn't where the answer is. And so the experience of the unknown or the unconditioned is, is somewhat unique, but it always has the flavor, like how it happens is going to be unique, how each of us get up against that wall where our mind is no longer in that moment uh, trying to manipulate or strategize with one's experience in order to get that feeling of release or happiness. And it lets go of the world. And then it's just like, Amazing. Can it really be that simple? It's really that simple. It's all about not being attached to the world, to everything that's known, to the mind-body. It's not about rejecting it, and it's not about grasping after it, right? And, but the thing is, we don't know that experience, and it's not so easy to do that experience, because 
when we do that experience, when I try to let go of the world, I'm doing it from a worldly point of view. I want that experience. So you really, one way or another, we have to be up against that spiritual wall, trapped, where, because there's an insight there. It's the insight into dukkha, that, that the, the limitations, seeing the limitations of this existence. And then the mind releases its ongoing attempt to derive satisfaction from existence. And that's a moment of real insight. And when that insight is deep enough, the mind is at a point where it won't forget that the existence is limited. And so it may play with existence, but, it, but it, uh, it's uh, kind of under the gravitational pull of letting go of any attachment, any gripping. I don't know if that addresses what you said, but yeah, Julian. I think what you're talking about, the small mind is very limited, and the big mind is infinite, and we're stuck in our small mind so we can break through it. And that's the wall that got us to the big mind, but we can't conceive the big mind until the, the small mind is pressed up. So, uh, uh, you know, our limitations are our small mind, but what we're trying to get is the infinite and the oneness. So Yeah, and, and we have to be careful about conceptualizing. I, I would really stay focused on the letting go rather than than uh, the experience. Like even calling it oneness is problematic. And uh, um, yeah, so it, but but what what we all know already is, <clears throat> like I said at the beginning of the talk, we all know about recognizing the mind or heart when it's bound up with some problem or some desire, catching it, and the release of that. So it's basically unpacking, developing that experience, noticing. And the more we cultivate concentration or mindfulness, that, that continuity of mindfulness, the more sensitive we become. The more sensitive we become, like it or not, we feel the impingement. We feel the limitations of this existence so much more. So we get the right motivation begins to arise, the right motivation of letting go. So concentration isn't just pleasant. It also sets in motion a, a profound sensitivity to dukkha, to the limitations of existence, both in a worldly sense where we see suffering around us, but just the, the limitations of having a body and uh, a sensory, being a sensitive creature. That we can, we can never deliver what we intuit, 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 intuitively feel is available. Right? We, we kind of get that it's possible to be free. But <laughs> we look for it and we don't find it. But yet, we feel like it's there. So this is the, the tension. I want to save a little bit of time. Go ahead, Casey, and then let's see if. Would you say that when you don't feel that way, like when you're not feeling uh, like there's a possibility to be free, but you definitely have that experience of something up against the wall, you know, when you're living your life, you're just over and over again, that you're a coach or that. Maybe a little louder for people. <clears throat> well, I guess my question is uh, would you say that? Uh, 
Okay. <laughs> there's a there's a a beautiful place in practice where we begin to trust being up against that wall, and it feels unbearable. But but more than the feeling of it being unbearable, the sensitivity. The, the sort of constant arising of doubt, like where is this going? How could this be useful? Yeah. But there's a beautiful part of practice where we are convinced there's no other way. You know what I mean? And so that gives us the strength just to keep doing what, because we can't actually conceive of how it's going to work. You know, if we could conceive of how the mind is going to let go of its limitations, we, you know, we do it. So it's an accident waiting to happen. And we're just, you know, that's a, that's a line that someone wrote a long time ago. You know, enlightenment or awakening is an accident waiting to happen. And the practice is making ourselves more accident prone. And there's some, it's, it's funny, but it's some real truth to that. Um, and when, you know, when I reflect back on the different insights I've had in my life, you know, there's, there's no... It was no like, okay, I'm approaching an inside, I'm getting close, I'm warmer, warmer, colder, you know, and, and all of a sudden, it's none of that sort of strategy involved. It's a bit like an explosion. But of course, in hindsight, you can see how the way the mind was reflecting, what the mind was paying attention to, how it was paying attention to, the kind of questions the mind was asking, all of that was very relevant to that accident happening, to that whatever you want to call it. We call it insight to that happening. But uh, we, nobody makes it happen. It's a natural event that arises when the causes and conditions are there. And so we've got some maps about supporting, you know, the supporting causes and conditions, like being mindful, um, being interested, uh, being aware of the views that w we're sort of living through. Reflecting on these teachings, you know, these very provocative teachings. Enough, you know, we don't have to think about them constantly, but just like planting seeds, loosening the screws, uh, the sort of strong beliefs that we have. Before we end, maybe just take a few minutes if anybody has some thoughts. I, I mentioned yesterday that each night we'd just see if anybody has any reflections on the three kinds of craving. So learning about our craving for sensuality. And just uh, that reflection that was in the handout. I'll talk more about the, so we talked tonight about the first noble truth. Tomorrow night, the second noble truth, there is a, a cause for the suffering. It needs to be abandoned. It has been abandoned. And to talk about that, uh, that letting go process, we'll, we'll cover that tomorrow night. But just in terms of you know eating your food and noticing the desire, the attachment to the desire, or the identification that I really want to take another bite, I really want to put more in my mouth. Any thoughts about what you saw? Yeah, Julian. I've practiced Zen for years, and we sat still. I mean, we're not supposed to move. I mean, just told, just sit, doesn't matter, the pain, whatever. And in this practice, after a couple years, I began doing what I'm doing now, which is moving a lot. And I realized that it's a self-soothing behavior. And perhaps there's reasons for it. 
you know, at certain times there's energy moving through me or whatever, and I can sit still if I want. I don't think about it, per se, but I know you've been using the word stillness a lot recently, too. And I realize there's an importance of that, just so that we, we know that we don't have to react to every impulse the body has to itch and, and things like that. You know, and some teachers move and some just sit still. I don't know, so, I mean, I realize that my movement, my movement is a self-soothing behavior. So that's what you need to investigate, more, more than having coming to the decision whether you should move when you're sitting or not. You want to look at how uh, you want to look at all the different processes that are involved in the movement. What, what's the mind doing? I mean, that's what's relevant. What is the mind doing? Under what views is the mind operating? Is there another way to relate to experience in those views? And without judging, just to explore, just to... Um, and so when someone might take up a resolve of sitting still, wouldn't be because sitting still is right, but in order to uh, provoke those particular views the mind is under the influence of to show their hand so we can see what it is. And I, you know, I have had to do that sometimes um, because it's very easy for me to say to myself, well, the body energetically is just doing its thing. And, uh, and there's some truth to that. And to restrict that wouldn't probably be good. But it's good to explore that, to really check, not to always assume we know what's going on. Because our attachment is, can be very subtle, can be as subtle as anything. And uh, like you talked about, yeah, and then it just gets established as a habit, exactly. Any other reflections on sense experience? Yeah, Patty. the same sort of thing like sometimes a statement like that it is artificial but just understand the purpose of it is to expose uh, attitudes that might be so uh, common that they don't stand out so you, you make a statement like it's it's just pleasant you know and that might seem a little artificial but it might expose a voice yeah but I like it you know you know, but it's pleasant for me. I need this. I've been working really hard on retreat. This is what I need. And then you can see that from a different angle because now you're prepared. You're mindful. You see, oh, this is the force of craving. 
this is what the Buddha, this is what's extra, this idea that somebody is getting something from the pleasant experience. It's nothing wrong with the pleasant experience. And it's nothing wrong with being really awake, sensitive to the pleasant experience. But when we take that pleasant experience and construct something that's complicated and bound up, well, then we feel complicated and bound up. And that's unnecessary. And that's what we can see by experimenting like you, you've been describing. Yeah, and so if you haven't done it, then do it tonight, like under the covers or when you get home. Notice how the mind wants to embellish the pleasant experiences you're going to have, hopefully, um, tonight. Like make them personal and extracting personal meaning from it. And see if you can have pleasant experiences, but in a very simple way. So if you snuggle up to your partner and you like that, uh, then notice that, but see what, like experiment, what's this like without making it a personal experience? You know, just the basic warmth, just the basic comfort, without any sort of complicated notions. We really love each other. She, he's really here for me. Those kinds of, where we're, we're creating a whole world then that we're afraid might change. As soon as we construct something, then it's vulnerable to change. And then we have to deny the impermanence, which is itself stressful. And imagine, unconsciously mostly, that it's not going to change. Yeah, John. So how is Ajahn Tomato or you suggesting we think about consciousness or like experience consciousness? Well, first, first and foremost, to get interested in it, and just like you could with love, I think I, for me it, it works the same way. As we really become students of love, like the actual experience of love or compassion, or students of awareness, we we just begin to intuitively understand its nature that it is unbounded. It can't be captured by are, you can't define it, but yet we can't deny its existence. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and so it 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 uh, suggests to the mind um, an unlimited, unbounded refuge, and it really makes our more bounded, restricted experience stand out more and more and more and become slowly more and more unbearable because we intuit something that's essentially free, fearless, not subject to coming and going. And so that just makes the limitations of our existence all the more poignant. So there's two, two paths, right? Uh, and, and basically we need to cultivate both paths. One is insight into dukkha, the other is insight into freedom. Whether it's through the deepening understanding of awareness, deepening understanding of love. Those are our two paths. And it's healthiest, I think, to cultivate both. But generally, we're better at one than the other. And it's nice to use our strength, but uh, don't neglect the other, because it really sharpens what we're good at by doing some of the other work. 
Yeah, Susan. You know, when you talk about consciousness and love together, are, are they the same thing? Are you suggesting that they're the same thing? Or is there a separation there? That there are nuances that are different? Well, I, I guess what I'm suggesting is that um, because this existence of ours is uh, a limitation on what is ultimately not limited, uh, not uh, contained, that the sort of unconditioned leaks through our, into our conditioned reality as love and as awareness. It sort of, uh, it, yeah, it, it sort of leaks through. So it, uh, it's an avenue or it's a, it's a thread we use in practice. We awaken to those, to the unconditioned, wherever it's leaking through, you know, wherever we can intuitively see it. Did you have your hand up? Yes. Okay. And then we'll have to end here. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of this metaphor up, up, up against the wall, mm-hmm. sort of that deeply contracted, kind of difficult place. And, and I'm, I'm also thinking about intoxicants, like caffeine, and for me, wine in particular, uh, and the, just the distinct expansiveness that comes from a cup of coffee and the distinct release that comes from a glass of wine. And just, um, I would just love to know how to organize myself in those moments. I, I mean, it's not like it's a big addiction or, or just a big force in my life, but I feel like it's, it's really, um, like what what resource to draw on in those moments when it's just so yuck and a little cup of coffee is gonna you know just do the trick you know and, and so I, I would just love for you to help. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, it's it's just like think about it as a in a really long long term, and uh, we we want to choose our battles. And, uh, but I think we just don't want to do it out of ignorance. We want to understand the limitations of the cup of green tea or the glass of wine. That it's, it's just a temporary resource to balance the mind, to create some space in the mind. Clearly, there are, there's lots of medicine, and I would include caffeine and alcohol as medicine. Certainly they can be abused. A lot of medicine is. Meditation retreats are also abused. You know, reading Dharma books can be abused. So a lot of good medicine can be abused. We just need to be intelligent about what we're doing and about the limitations of uh, these strategies. That we're just we're just regrouping. We're getting some refreshment. But ultimately, and we can say this to ourselves. You know, ultimately. Uh, there will be times when there won't be caffeine available. There won't be any out. What will I do then? Maybe I should practice developing resources not yet developed when I can. Because it's always easy. I mean, for us, most of us have enough money and time. It's usually relatively easy for us to have these different stimulants, which whether it's a movie or turning the internet on or having a glass of wine or whatever, to relieve the uh, the recognition of life as heavy, and mm-hmm. well, and I, I think it's partly my point. 
I mean, like, this feels like it's a really important place, being against the swamp. Yeah. And, and it's like, I, I just noticed that this is a perpetual little way out all, yeah. all the time. And, and what is that? Well, you're asking the right questions, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? It's like um, the more we see that, uh, like I remember one teacher saying, um, yeah, and I began to notice how many nights each week I was watching Star Trek Next Generation. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what's going on? You know, what am, what am I really doing here? And I have, this is a, can be a powerful existential fear, good fear, wholesome fear that arises for us. What the hell am I doing? What kind of strategy is this? You know, we, we kind of, in a moment, get a little glimpse. It's like, you know, how you can, in a moment, just see what's been, what you've been doing for the last couple of months or the last couple of years or decades in terms of your basic life strategy. And you go, what the hell am I doing? What, where do I think this is leading? Is this leading to any place I want to go? You know, it's like how many different versions of just getting by do we have in this room, let alone in this world? But what kind of strategy is that, that we're going through life with strategies that are all about just getting by, just getting to the end of the week, just getting to retirement, just getting, you know, to whatever our next vacation and so then that inspires us to take up a different tactic, you know, which is to stay put. Instead of like changing relationships, just stay put. You know, changing teachers, changing meditation strategies, just stay put. I mean, I'm not saying that's always the right strategy, but this idea that, well, I'll just deal with the doubt. I'll just work with the frustration. I'll just turn it into my teacher. Okay, the frustration or the doubt the feeling that nothing's happening, that will be my teacher. And I'll see if I can find freedom and ease with that experience. Otherwise, we're pursuing the basic delusion that happiness will come when the conditions are right, forgetting that conditions are never going to be stable. But yet, 99.9% .9 of our efforts is seeking happiness through conditions which will never be stable. It's so insane. I mean, I'm just caught up as the rest of you probably are close. And yet we do it. So I think it's good to have conversations like this. And it's good to recognize, as you're saying, when that you're starting to see. I mean, just the fact that you're seeing what you're doing in that way and, and really honestly uh, um, um, admitting that there is a release that you get from having a glass of wine or caffeine so that you're really being honest. You're not just being parental like you shouldn't do that. But you say, well, I do that. I get this. But where does that leave me? You know, where does that leave me? And then we're just more dependent to do it again. Trungpa Rinpoche once said, you know, it's, an, it's one of these provocative statements. You can use it if you'd like. I think it was Trungpa Rinpoche. Maybe somebody could correct me. Um, something like uh, <clears throat> better not to start the practice, but if you start it, better to finish it. You know, and it's this idea once once you get on this path of awakening, we, like I said earlier, we get more sensitive and we notice how conditioned existence is actually the way that it is. 
It's not just that we've made some mistakes and it's this way. See, this is how we justify how heavy life can be. Well, I've screwed up. <laughs> but that's just part of the trip. You know, we're always going to be screwing up. And being the person who can't screw up is its own hell realm. <laughs> so, so once we've gotten on, which all of us have, then we're already sensing that this wall, you know, this sort of proverbial wall. And we're already sensing that we don't have too many cards to play. Like that wonderful poem by Havis, which I can't quote, <laughs> about uh, uh, life is a bit like playing chess with God. This is a bad paraphrase. And uh, God has made just such an amazing move um, that you're, you're just uh, tripping over joy. And that's not, there's something about thinking you have a hundred moves. Yeah, but th there's something about thinking you have a lot. The saint, the saint um, would be um, joyful and happy, but you... Yeah, <laughs> think I have a hundred moves yet to play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Thanks, Jane. Good. Any closing thoughts before we finish this part of the evening? Yeah, Julian. Shall we, who knows, talk about that part? Died. Well, I think most yeah. people know. Yeah, he was an alcoholic. He at 43. You didn't know that? Yeah. One of the great mysteries how people who seemingly are great teachers can have some amazing blind spots. Seemingly. I mean, it's. I don't know the man, so I can't say for sure, but certainly from the reports, this mystery. So let's just let go of the words for a few seconds. Take a couple breaths. And let go of any notion that we have to hang on to anything. Of course, we have only one true teacher, which is the present moment experience. So thanks, everyone, for your comments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.